First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. Lord, we are broken people in need of a Savior. We pray that you would speak to us, Father. You would draw us to yourself, that we might see how much we need you in this broken world in which we live. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel 14, the passage that was just read for us. And as you're turning there, I know that uh, some of you may be uh, new to our church. You may not have heard me share much about my family before, but my wife Megan and I have four uh, sons, and today is like birthday week in our, our household. This week, uh, yesterday, our son Micah turned nine years old, and uh, later this week, our oldest son Silas is going to turn 11 years old, and that uh, that is blowing my mind, the fact that Pastor Blaine is here, the fact he's going to be in your student ministry in like a year and a half uh, is unbelievable to me, but uh, just so thankful for my boys. I know every parent in this room would say that, what a blessing uh, our children are to us, uh, but I also know that every parent in this room would, would probably say this about their kids as well, that even though they're a great blessing, even though they're so sweet, uh, our kids have a, a born-in innate skill to manipulate their parents to try to get what they want. I was thinking just a couple of weeks ago, one of my sons was trying to get me to give him some chocolate milk. And I said, I said no. And you can probably guess what he said next. He said, but mommy always gives me chocolate milk. And I know that that's not the case. She doesn't always give them chocolate milk. But what was he trying to say, right? He was trying to say, why does mommy love us more than you, dad? Why are you this mean monster who won't give his kids chocolate milk? And of course, I just go right along with it. I just say, you're right. Mommy does love you more than me. And I go to bed. <laughs> you know, and they'll, they'll bring anything into it, right, to try to get what they want. They'll bring their friends into it, right? They'll say, well, my, all my friends get to do this, dad. Then they even take it up a notch. Even my church friends get to do this, Dad. And I'll say, that's because they have cooler parents than you do. It's, it's tough being you. And I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm told that manipulation doesn't stop when your kid becomes a teenager. That they actually just get better at it. They get more subtle at it. They get more sophisticated at it. But the manipulation continues. And, and the truth is, it isn't just children and teenagers that are expert manipulators. We as grown-ups can be too. The truth is, we've had a whole lifetime to practice our craft. And in this story in the Bible, there's a whole lot of manipulation going on. Now, you heard some of it in the portion of the story that was just read for us. You're going to hear more as we continue to work our way through to the middle of chapter 15 this morning. This teaching series is called I'm Broken. We've been talking about how when we're asked how we're doing, oftentimes we say, I'm okay, I'm, everything's fine, even though deep down we know that that's not the case, that we are we're really broken. We're all broken people. 
And one of the ways, and we're going to see that in this story today, one of the ways that that brokenness expresses itself is in our attempts to manipulate our situations, to manipulate the other people in our life, even if it were possible to manipulate God himself, to try to get our life to turn out the way that we want. But what we're going to find out is that when we do that, when we try to fix what's broken through manipulation, not only do things not get fixed, they just get broken even worse. That's what happens to the people in this story. In their story, we can see that the answer is not manipulation, it's salvation. That what we really need is not uh, some crafty plan that we've worked up to try to make things right. What we need is a Savior who can take hold of our life and make what's broken whole again. As we walk through this portion of 2 Samuel today, I want you to observe with me three kinds of manipulation that are taking place here in this story. First off, we're going to see the manipulation of pretense. Manipulation of pretense. Before we jump into chapter 14, we do need to remember where we are in uh, the life story of King David. This uh, story comes after David's sad and tragic fall with Bathsheba that took place in chapter 11. Uh, This uh, comes after God has confronted him about his sin after David has repented and, and, and been forgiven and been restored by God to fellowship with him. But God also told David that there was going to be consequences in his life and in his household because of his sin. And we began to see those consequences last week when a, when a terrible tragedy took place between one of David's sons, his oldest son Amnon, and one of his daughters named Tamar. We also saw how another one of David's sons, Absalom, to revenge what happened to his sister Tamar, kills his brother Amnon. Then at the very end of chapter 13, Absalom runs away to another country. He basically kind of banishes himself because he knows it's not safe for him to stay in Israel after what he has done. At the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14, you can tell that in David's heart there, there's a tension that's going on. There's, there's part of him, of course, as a dad that, that, that is longing to see Absalom, that reaches out for Absalom, but, but also he's, he, he doesn't forget. He, he obviously remembers what Absalom has done to his other son, Amnon. And so there's a tension inside David's heart. And so three years goes by and David does nothing. And so as our story opens in chapter 14, Joab, who is David's commanding general, decides that he's going to come up with a plan to force David's hand, to get David to do something. And in Joab's opinion, what David needs to do is to bring Absalom back from exile. But but instead of just going to David and, and speaking directly to David about this, he uh, decides that he's going to use pretense. His scheme is to go, first of all, and hire an actress. And so he finds an actress in a town called Tekoa, about 10 miles away, the same place that the prophet Amos was born in. 
In verses 2 and 3, Joab does a little rehearsal with his actress. He first puts her in costuming and makeup and tells her she needs to dress herself as if uh, she had been in mourning for a long period of time. And, And then he gives her the script. He gives her the screenplay and says, study this. This is what I want you to say when you go to King David. And so now, before this conversation happens between David and this woman, we as the readers already know something that David doesn't know. We know that her entire story is made up. We know that her story comes right from David's general Joab. And we know that really her story is about David bringing Absalom back. That's what Joab is trying to accomplish through this woman. And so in verse 4, the woman comes into David's presence and she falls down on her face and she cries out, Oh, help! Oh, king! I mean, she's laying it on pretty thick right from the beginning, right? This is going to be an Oscar-worthy performance taking place here. And then she says, I'm a poor widow, and I have two sons. And my two sons got in an altercation out in a field, and one of my sons killed the other one. It's starting to sound an awful lot like the story of Cain and Abel. Well, then she says, the, the rest of my extended family, my, my clan, uh, they want to come after the living son that I have left and put him to death because of his crime, because he has murdered his brother. But, oh, king, if they were to do that, they're going to extinguish my ember. She says, it's like I got one little coal left in my fire. My fire is flickering out. But if they do this, if they kill my one remaining son, well, that's the end of the family name. That's the end of the family line. And so she's appealing to David's mercy on her and on her family to cause him to overlook what her son did to his brother. Well, look at David's first response in verse 8. The king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. That, that's basically like when we say, I'll get back with you, right? Let's put a pin in that. But, but, but that doesn't suffice for this woman, right? She needs an answer right now and, or in order for her to be able to say what she really came to say, which is about Absalom. And so she boldly speaks to the king again. And she says, no, king, let the iniquity, let the sin rest on me. I think she's saying to King David, David, if, if you're afraid that you're going to be sinning by, by showing mercy to this guilty son of mine, don't worry about that. Let the sin rest on my head for that. Well, David comes back, and his second reply is a little bit more direct, but he basically uh, says, well, if anybody gives you a hard time about this, if anybody bothers you, well, then bring him to me then, and I'll deal with it then. But still, that's not enough for this woman. What she wants is a promise from the king that he will pardon and he will protect her son. And finally, at the end of verse 11, That is what she gets. David says, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. What has David just done? David has just promised to protect the life of a son who killed his brother. And now the woman is going to say what she really came to say in the first place. And so after asking for permission to speak, she says this in verse 13. Why then? Have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Now this whole thing should remind us of what the prophet Nathan did to David just a couple chapters before this in chapter 12. You remember that? 
when Nathan came and he wanted to confront David about his sin with Bathsheba, but he doesn't come directly at David. Instead, he makes up a little story, right, about two neighbors and one that stole the other neighbor's one little lamb. And then David says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Now, that's basically what this woman from Tekoa is doing, right? She's saying, you're being two-faced about this, David. You were willing to protect my son and to pardon my son, uh, but, but you're not willing to pardon yours. You're not willing to bring him back from banishment. And she almost makes it seem like by keeping him in exile that David was robbing the whole nation of Israel from their king that would come after David. They see Absalom now as the heir apparent to David's throne. In verse 14, the woman says, For we will surely die and become like water spilled out on the ground. I think maybe she's talking to David about the death of his son Amnon, saying, David, everybody has to die. There's nothing you can do to bring Amnon back. What you need to worry about now is is Absalom. And then she says this at the end of verse 14. She says, Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. She's saying, David, we have a God who who is a giver of life. We have a God who who, who doesn't exile people. We have a God who brings people back from exile. Isn't that what you want to be like, David? Don't you want to be merciful like God? After she says that in in verses 15 through 17, she kind of backtracks a little bit and and goes back to her story about her two sons. And and this has confused a lot of people. They think maybe these verses are out of place or something, but but I think they're exactly where they are. What what this woman is, is doing is really masterful. She doesn't want David to believe that her story is made up. She wants David to believe that, no, 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 this story is real about my two sons. And and what I said to you in that middle part there about your son Absalom is just kind of a side note. It just just happens to have some application to what's going on in your life. But no, I, I really do have this situation with my two sons, and I really do want you to protect me. And see, this woman from Tekoa was not a prophet of God like Nathan. And she didn't want David to think that she just literally barged into his presence with a made-up yarn in order to attack the character of the king. And so uh, in verses 15 through 17, she also gets out her proverbial stick of butter and starts to lay a little butter on David as well, right? She calls him an angel of God. Nobody discerns good and evil like you do, David. You're amazing. David, you know everything. And may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord bless Israel, and God bless America, and I'm out. Right? That's what she does. And she's trying to protect herself as much as she possibly can. But David wasn't born yesterday. Again, this wasn't the first time that somebody had tried to use a story like this to get his attention. And so the whole time as he's listening to her talking, he's thinking. And he's thinking, I I know this is really about Absalom. I, I know the rest of this lady's story is completely made up. And I also know this. I also know that she didn't come up with this ruse on her own. And then he begins to think, there's only one person I know of who would be bold enough to do something like this. And it's my general, Joab. And so eventually, he just comes right out and he just asks her straight up. He said, did Joab put you up to this? And the woman says, yes. Actually, she says a lot more than that. She, She lays on even some more butter and calls him an angel again. But essentially, she says, yes, Joab told me what to say. And in verse 21, presumably this woman has gone on her way back to Tekoa, and now it's Joab 
who's standing in front of the king. And it's a suspenseful moment for the reader because you don't know how is he going to respond to this. Is he going to like the fact that this trick has been played on him? But basically what David says to Joab is, all right, fine. You win. Go and get Absalom and, and bring him back. But he still can't come to the palace. And he still can't see my face. He has to live off by himself. And you can just hear the struggle that's going on inside David. He, he's going to let Absalom come back, but he still doesn't know if it's right. And so he keeps him at arm's length. But even so, what Joab and this woman from Tekoa conspired to do was to persuade David to bring Absalom back. And they were mostly successful with that, right? This, their their made-up story was effective. Their ploy worked. But that doesn't mean that it was godly. It doesn't mean that it was right. And it doesn't mean that what David did in bringing Absalom back was necessarily right either. You see, even though this story reminds us of the tact that Nathan the prophet used in chapter 12, there's, there's one big difference between these two made-up stories. In, in chapter 12, when David was listening to the prophet Nathan, he knew that there, somebody had put words in Nathan's mouth. But David knew the one who put words in Nathan's mouth was God. And so for him to respond to that story was definitely right. But that's not the case in this story. David also knows that someone has put words in the woman from Tekoa's mouth. But it's not God who has done so. It's Joab. And the words that he is hearing are not necessarily the words of God. They're the words of Joab. It's what Joab thinks that David ought to do. You can make the case that David should have left Absalom in exile because of what he had done. Or that if he did bring Absalom back, it should have only been to execute judgment upon him for the murder that he had committed against his brother. That's actually what the law required David to do. But again, in the short run, it seemed like what Joab did was successful. But in the long run, here's the question to think about. Did Joab's manipulation of getting David to bring Absalom back make the situation better or worse? It undoubtedly made the situation worse and brought Absalom one step closer to the evil that Absalom intended to do. We need to remember that both in our lives and in the lives of those that we listen to, it is possible to make plans. It is possible to have strategies, to have arguments about things that all sounds like there's a lot of wisdom in it. And yet, as one person put it, it's completely devoid of godly wisdom. Church, there is a difference between godly wisdom and the wisdom of this world. This is how James put it in the New Testament, in the epistle that bears his name. Look at these words. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You don't hear a lot of meekness in this story that we're about to read. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic. 
For where evil and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Friends, I don't know who is counseling you right now. I don't know if you're listening right now to a Joab or to a wise woman from Tekoa or to a prophet named Nathan, but test what you are listening to. Is it a wisdom that comes from above, or is it a wisdom that comes from below? We've seen one kind of manipulation in this story so far, the manipulation of pretense, but next we're going to see a different kind of manipulation that's even more aggressive, and that's a power play. And to see that, let's pick up the story where we left off. Verse 25 of chapter 14 it says, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair on his head, and it was 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but he did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here, so that I may send you to the king, to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be still there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Now, before we jump into the power plays that Absalom makes here, first, the narrator wants us to get to know who Absalom is. And so he describes him for us a little bit there in verses 25 through 27. Basically, he says that Absalom was Mr. Israel, uh, that he was the most handsome man around. He was a 10 out of 10 in the looks department. It says that he did not have a blemish on him. He did not even need a dermatologist. His skin was like a baby. Notice it says, though, he has no defects on his body. It doesn't say anything about his soul. And we're about to find out that there are plenty of blemishes there. You know, if you've been with us in our study of the books of Samuel so far, it should be concerning to you when you hear about a person who is very good-looking on the outside but has defects of character on the inside. He's starting to sound an awful lot like Saul, who looked the part of a king, but we all know how that turned out. It seems also that Absalom knew full well how good-looking he was and how good-looking everybody thought he was. And the thing that he loved most about himself was his long, luxurious hair. I mean, me and Absalom, we could have been twins. We, we just side by, you couldn't even tell us apart. It says that every year he would cut his hair and, and he would weigh it. I mean, who, who does that, right? Who weighs their hair? Right, but he would weigh his hair and it, it weighed uh, the equivalent of five pounds of hair. This, this boy could grow some hair. 
I don't know if he gave it to locks of love or if every lady got a strand of his hair every year when he cut it. I'm, I'm not sure. But, but this is what he does. And, it, and it's very ironic because if you ha- have read the end of Absalom's story, then you know that this beautiful, long, luxurious hair that he loved so much ends up actually leading to his undoing. We're told about Absalom's family, including his beautiful daughter Tamar, who was named after her beautiful aunt. So even though everything about Absalom's life is so beautiful on the outside, Absalom is broken on the inside. Absalom is angry. Absalom resents his father who has brought him back but will not let him see his face. It's been two years now since he came back from exile, and still he has never been invited to see his father. And so he's had enough of it. And he decides he's going to force his way into his father's presence. And he thinks, Joab is the only man who can help me do this. I need Joab to go to my father for me. And so two times he calls to Joab to try to get him to come and help. And Joab says the letter got lost in the mail, right? He never comes. And so finally, Absalom decides he's going to do something about it. This is where Absalom's manipulation technique comes into play. First of all, he does power play number one, burn it down. Right? That's power play number one, right? He tells his servants to go and, and torch his fields. And, and so he burns his fields up, right? And so now he's starting to sound like another character that we've read about in the Bible, in the book of Judges, a man named Samson, also was known for his long hair and also liked to set people's fields on fire in order to get their attention. Well, this is what he does. And this manipulation technique is one that people still use today. There are many people who say, you know what, if, if I can't get somebody's attention, if I can't get somebody to do what I want them to do, well, then I'm going to just start setting some stuff on fire, so to speak. Until somebody acknowledges me, until somebody shows me some, some attention. And it can be effective. Just like here, however, people end up getting hurt when we go scorched earth to try to make a point. It ends up breaking us and it ends up breaking others even more. Well, Joab learns that his fields are on fire. He goes to Absalom to see what the deal is. And Absalom basically says, well, you wouldn't come when I called for you. And so I had to do that. And then he tells him, he wants him to go to King David, his father for him. And he gives him a message that he wants him to deliver. It's right there in the middle of verse 32. This is what I want you to say to my dad. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is an an iniquity in me, then let him execute me. Now, that's another manipulation technique there. And this is a classic. It's called the ultimatum. This is basically what he's giving to his dad. He's saying, listen, if, if I've done something wrong, then just kill me and get it over with. But if I haven't done something wrong, then you need to take me all the way back and you need to let me come and see your face. These are your two choices. Now, those weren't actually David's only two choices. There's a few others that I can think of, but this is why this is manipulative. It's how Absalom makes it sound. And Joab goes and delivers the message and David ends up picking to overlook Absalom's murder of his brother and to take him back. And so in verse 33, these two have a meeting, father and son. But as you read it, it sounds a little bit awkward, doesn't it? 
There, there's no conversation that happens that's recorded for us in this text. There's, there's no affection really that's shared other than this one kiss that seems a little bit more perfunctory than it does a warm embrace of father and son. And so even though officially Absalom has been received back into the family, you can still tell that there's tension within David that he really doesn't know if what he's doing is right. And he's not sure if it's right because it probably wasn't right. I think what's probably most troubling about Absalom is that he weasels his way back into his father's good graces, but if you notice, he never expresses any sorrow, any repentance for what he had done anywhere in this story. In fact, he says in verse 32, if I have done iniquity, then let him execute me. If If I have done iniquity, he has lied to his father, he has murdered his brother in cold blood. Now he might say, well, he had it coming to him, but nonetheless, he still violated the law of God. He had iniquity for sure, and and yet his heart is so hard that he has convinced himself that really, I never did anything wrong at all. Friend, is it possible that right now that is the condition of your heart? That even when you hear the word of God preached, your heart is hard. That in your mind you think, well, I've never, never really done anything wrong. I mean, I might have done a few things wrong, but I'm, I'm not worse than anybody else. And, and I don't need to repent for anything. I don't need to say I'm sorry for anything. God sees me. He sees what I'm doing. And, and that's fine. But, but if that's the condition of your heart, if that's, if that's your attitude, it, it may make you look strong to the world, but it will never bring you one inch closer to God. Absalom was able to see David's face. But friend, if your heart is hard like Absalom's, you'll never get to see God's face. Because you're only invited to come into God's presence if you come humbly. If we come on our knees. If we come admitting that we're broken. And that we desperately need a Savior. The Bible says God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Unfortunately, Absalom killing his brother and setting Joab's fields on fire was only the beginning of what Mr. Israel intended to do. He's about to try to steal his father's whole kingdom. Look at chapter 15, verse 1 with me. It says, After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And so it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision... But Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land. Everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted towards all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I have made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. 
Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. In the time that we have left, I want us to look at one final kind of manipulation uh, tactic that's used in this story. We've talked about the manipulation of pretense and the manipulation of power plays, but now we see the manipulation of politics. And that's really what Absalom is doing in chapter 15. He's playing politics. He's trying to undermine his father's rule. He's trying to win as many people to his own cause as he can until he's ready to make a play for the kingdom. Like any good politician does, he starts by building up his image. In verse 1, it says he gets himself some chariots and some horses, and he gets 50 men to run in front of him anytime he goes out in the city. Now, I know he's a a prince and the son of the king, uh, but doesn't that seem a little bit overboard to you? Uh, It it actually reminds me of of, of this uh, this scene in, in the movie Aladdin. Uh, I don't know if y'all have seen this, where, where the genie, Will Smith, right? He's, he's leading this big processional uh, to prepare the way for Prince Ali, mighty as he, Ali Abagwa, right? To, to come into the town. And, and this is all about creating an image that Prince Absalom is fit to be king. And then in verses 2 through 6, we read about how Absalom, little by little, stole the hearts of the people from his father. And what he would do is every morning, he would get up bright and early, he would go and he would post himself down by the gate of the city. Now, in ancient times, the gate of the city was like our modern-day courtroom. It's where people came to try their lawsuits and their cases. And so he would be just standing there as anybody came in and had a, had a case. And, and he would ask them, brother, how, how are you? What, what city do you come from? And he would tell him what city he came from. And he would say, well, what seems to trouble you? Tell me about your situation. And he would tell him the, the, the case. And, and he would say, uh, he would say, well, that's, uh, that, that's a good case you've got there. That's a strong case you've got there. And, and I'm sure he never said anything other than that. Everybody had a good case, right, that came to Absalom. Because it wasn't about giving justice or saying what was right. It was about winning people's affections and winning their heart. So you've got a good case, brother. That's a winning case right there. Uh, if only the king, my dad, who is old and decrepit, if only he was down here to, to do something about this, If only he had appointed somebody that could listen to you and and help you, well, then you might be in business. But, but, you know, if only I were made the judge of the land, well, then I could really help you because I hear you. I care for you. I want to do everything in my power to help you. And you can see what what he's doing. And then it says that people started to to bow down to him as the prince. And and, and what he would do is he would get off his horse, right? He would come down and and, and he he would kiss them. He'd take them by the hands and he would kiss them. As one person put it, he had perfected what politicians today call the everyman technique, right? You know, I know we have the Iowa caucus this week, right? And so every year, about every four years about this time, no matter which party it is, right, every politician wants to pretend that even though if they've been in business school their entire life and in an ivory tower their entire life, that really they've been a farmer in Iowa pretty much their whole life, right? 
And so every one of them, every one of them gets a photo taken. They've got a cowboy hat on. They got their foot up on a fence post, right? They're riding a tractor. I don't know what it is, but, but somehow uh, they're, they're right down with the people, right? They're, they're, they're a common everyday man. This is what Absalom is doing thousands of years ago, right? Politics never changes. And then it says that he is kissing them. I mean, he's literally kissing babies, right? I mean, this is, this is politics 101, right? He's kissing them. He's posting pictures of himself on Instagram, right? He's, he's tweeting out, if only I were the king, right? Caption. Verse 6, at the end of verse 6, it says everything was working for him because he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What that expression really means is he deceived them. He duped them into thinking he was something that he wasn't. It's the manipulation of politics. Verse 7 uh, should really read as it does in many other versions four years rather than 40 years. After four years, Absalom decides that the time is right, that he has had enough of a following, that he's ready to make his move on the throne. But he begins that move on the throne with another deception. And so he goes to his dad, just like he did before when he said he was going to have this feast and he wanted his brother Amnon to come and he had an ulterior motive. He does the same thing here. He says, well, well dad, back when I was in exile in Geshur, I made the Lord a promise that if I ever got to come back to the land of Israel, that I would go to the town I was born in, in Hebron, and I would make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, why he didn't do that for these last four years, he doesn't explain. And King David doesn't ask any questions. He lets him go. The text says he takes along 200 people with him, and they go innocently. They don't even know what they're getting themselves into. And by the time they figure out what's happening, it's too late. He stations people all throughout the land when they hear the sound of the horn to shout out, Absalom reigns in Hebron. Well, now the revolt is in full effect. And the announcement is made simultaneously. So everybody thinks, well, there's probably nothing we can do about this now. This is, a, this is a done deal. Verse 12 says the conspiracy grew stronger and stronger. More people came to Absalom's side every day. And so in verse 13, some loyal servant comes to King David and says, King, the hearts of the men are with Absalom. And we'll find out next time what David does next and how this story of Absalom's rebellion comes to an end. You know, this part of David's story that we're looking at today is, is puzzling in many ways. There's a lot of, of human wisdom. There's a lot of ingenuity that's taking place in this text, but not a lot of godly wisdom that's being shown. There's brokenness in David's family because of their sin. And what we see here is a lot of people trying to fix that brokenness by manipulating other people and manipulating a process. And as they do that, they just end up sinning even more and they end up just breaking things even worse. And the same is true for us today. When we try to fix what's broken on the inside of our lives, in our own way, through our own strategies, through our own manipulation, things don't get better, things get worse. Because like I said at the start, what we need is not manipulation. What we need is salvation. We don't need a crafty scheme. We need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you're wondering, well, where is God in this story? Where, where, what is God doing in this story? Well, he's doing a couple of things. First of all, he's fulfilling his word in the short term to judge David's house for David's sin. But secondly, he's also still going to fulfill the promise he made to David in the long term. A promise to send us a Savior, a son of David, 
who was born in Bethlehem, who is Jesus Christ. I love what the woman from Tekoa says back in chapter 14, verse 14, when she says, God devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. She was saying to David, God figures out a way to bring banished people back home. And you know, really, that's what the good news of the Bible is all about. Here's here's the truth that I want us to see today. Our God has devised a way to bring banished, broken people back to himself. And it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible says all of us have been exiled. All of us are banished because of our sin. The Bible says our sin separates us from a holy, righteous, perfect God. There is a gulf between us and God that we cannot cross because of our sin. But God has made a way through Jesus Christ, his son. And when we turn and put our faith in him and what he did at the cross, when he paid for our sin, and when he rose on the third day, God receives us God allows us to come back all the way home, to come back into his house, to come even into his family as his sons and his daughters. I want to ask you to stand right now. And if you're here and God is is speaking to you and you know, I need to come home. I've I've been away from God for a long time, but I know he's made a way through Jesus to bring me back home. I want to invite you right now to come speak with me or one of the other pastors that's here. And we'd love to talk with you about what that first step back home looks like in your life. You come as we sing together.